poll of everyone in here and ask you what your top five favorite worship songs were, I, we'd probably be pretty likely that everybody would have a slightly different list. Everybody has slightly different preferences, favorite styles, and then just historically what songs have spoken to you at different moments. You know, maybe songs that have come to you at certain times or remind you of family members. Um, for me, the song, Blessed Be Your Name, reminds me of the, the, the night that I became a Christian. So when I hear that song, I always get kind of teary-eyed because that's the song that points me to that day and that time. So that song has a little bit of a special meaning for me that maybe it doesn't have for you. And we all have our own personal preferences when it comes to music. Now, oftentimes, the conversation around worship music tends to revolve around our personal preferences. So this morning, I want to take some time and look at what the Bible has to say about worship music. What, is, uh, what does God want us to know about worship music, how it should be arranged, how we should sing together corporately? Now, it's very unlikely that most of you or any of us will have to arrange a service and set up the music, but you will be setting up the music in your playlists, in your car, car, and your road trips, and what songs you'll sing in the shower, and what music you'll play around your family. And you're going to inevitably have conversations with friends or family members, people you know maybe who are in the middle of switching churches, and they're asking the questions, well, I went to this church, and I liked this song, but I, I can't stand this song, and why is the drummer so loud, and why is the music too soft or too loud? And these, these conversations ine inevitably pop up. And it's, it's easy for us to jump and say, well, I like this and I don't like that. But I want to give us a biblical groundwork. You know, what does the Bible have to say about how worship should be conducted? How do we corporately sing together? And this morning's text is Psalm 98. Go ahead and open up there if you haven't already. And the nice thing about Psalm 98 is it's a song about how to sing. So it's doubly useful. We can look at this text and it tells us, here's how to sing and worship corporately. And then also, it's a song, worshiping corporately, so we can learn from it from both sides. So um, join with me as I read Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his, faithful, his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in a joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. What I want to show you this morning from this text is it's God who inspires us to sing together. Corporate worship, corporate singing is inspired by God and commanded by Scripture. Now, I want to examine several questions this morning. So I want to talk about why do we sing, what do we sing, how should we sing, and then finally look at this example at the end of the psalm here, where the, the, the psalmist here gives us an example of how nature sings and, and how that points us to, to God as well. So we're going to be going over kind of several different points here. But I want to start with the question, what do we sing? And we see here in verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. So we have to ask the question, what is a new song? Does this mean that Mason has to write new music every week? We have to learn new music every week? No, thankfully it doesn't mean that. And Mason is very grateful it doesn't mean that. 
and then the rest of our musicians. Um, so if it doesn't mean constantly writing new music, what is he referring to here? Because you can tell that that's not what he means because he wrote this song down to be sung multiple times. That's, the whole book is written like that. What this means, what sing a new song means is a new expression of worship every time. So sometimes that does mean new music. And sometimes that means a new set of music or a new arrangement of music or a new order of music that we sing. But every time we come together to sing, to raise our voices, we are singing a new song together. It's a new expression of the truths that we hold dear. We're singing to ourselves, we're singing worship to God, and we're singing to encourage each other. And there's going to be different voices on it at any given Sunday. And it makes a unique sound and a unique arrangement of music that goes up to God. And we're joining our voices with the rest of the world. And kind of hear the world being mentioned throughout this song. The, the whole world is lifting their voices in all the languages. And we get to add our language, which is English, to this mix. So that's, that's what he means by a new song. So that's, that's what we're singing. We're singing about what God is doing. And we're focusing on him. And this brings us to the next question of why do we sing? So we know what we're, we're commanded to sing, but why do we sing? And the psalmist gives us three reasons we should sing. The first is that God has done marvelous things. And what has he done? He's worked salvation. Has God worked salvation for you, church? Has he worked your salvation? Has he saved you? Therefore, you should sing a new song. If God has saved you, you should sing. And the next thing we see is that God has been faithful to us. He's been faithful, and he has remembered his steadfast love. Has God loved you this past week? Has he been faithful? Has he helped you through the trials? Has, have, there, have you had a place to sleep and food to eat? Has God provided for your daily bread? If this is true, then we should sing. We are commanded to sing, to raise our voices, to remind each other on Sunday, God has been good and faithful another week. He has continued to care for us. Let's sing together about that. And the third reason we should sing, we see here in verse 3, is that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Just like the angels, as the nations are converted, as more and more people come to Christ around the world, as new voices are added to this song, we should sing with joy that more and more people have been saved, that, that the gospel is going forth, that God's power is being manifest on this earth as it is in heaven. That should inspire us to song. So if these things are true, we should continue to sing. We should continue to sing a new song before the Lord. So that gives us the what and the why. Now we come to the how. And this is, this is where things get a little bit more technical and a little bit more difficult. So stay with me because I want to walk through exactly how does David tell us, or the psalmist tell us to worship. So what we see here in verses 4 through, four through 6, let me read them again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in a joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpet and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Now you notice the, the repeating word here. Make a joyful noise. Now this isn't just like car, loud car horn, horns. This is a joyful noise. This is joyful singing that sounds good. So a joyful noise, singing joyfully to the Lord. Joyful song, sing praises, sing praises. And then at the end, joyful noise at the end of that verse. So here we see multiple times he's commanding us to sing. So church music, corporate worship should be defined by voices singing truth. So the lyrics are very, very important to God. And that should be the, the main piece of our worship. 
It's not inherently instrumental. It's not inherently technical and long solos. It's everybody singing together. Corporate worship should be predominantly the whole congregation singing. Now, this doesn't mean we can't have a soloist once in a while or an instrumental bridge in the music to give us a chance to catch our breaths. That's fine. We need that. But predominantly, our worship should be characterized by the whole congregation singing and encouraging one another. This is, this is the first piece. And we have to understand that before we move to the second piece. And the second piece you see here is sing praise to the Lord with the lyre. The lyre, the sound of melody, the trumpets and the horn. And we, be, we see that where it's available, the, the church should sing with instruments. Now, this doesn't mean we can't sing a cappella. But where God gives us talent, where God gives us the ability to have musical instruments, God loves musical instruments. He wants them to be played along with the words. And this is kind of an important distinction because when we think about what instruments to use, the instruments need to support the voice and the lyrics. So an instrument that drowns out the words so you can't hear what you're singing is not a good way, to, not a good instrument for that worship service. So we want to make sure that the instrumentation is there, that it's supporting the music, and it's supporting the singing. Maybe that bridge gives you a chance to catch your breath so you can come back for the next chorus, but it's not drowning out the words, it's not overwhelming the words, it's not turning into a concert. So that, that's what we see here. Now, what instruments should we use? And we see here lyre, trumpets, and horn. So we've got two horns over here, and we have a lyre, which is the great-grandfather of the lute, which is the grandfather of the guitar. So we've got a guitarist, and we've got two horn players. Are these the only instruments we're supposed to use? Is, is this the approved sacred instruments of the church? Well, no. Look with me, if you would, at Psalm 150. Psalm 150, I'll read verses 3 through 6 here. Again, the psalmist commands, praise him with the trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Everything has breath. There's that singing element again. But notice the instrument selection here. You've got percussion. You've got strings. You've got harmony instruments, melodic instruments. You've got horns, you've got pipes, the, the breath instruments, the woodwind family is represented. The, all of the families of instruments are represented. There's no instrument that's discounted. The Bible does not have categories of the sacred instruments and the secular instruments. It's not that, okay, organs are special to God and pianos are special to God, but God doesn't like, you know, electric guitars. There's, those categories are not here in the scriptures. God wants to be worshipped by all of the instruments. And it's worth noting all of these instruments are the instruments of the Israelite culture. The reason that they have horns and ram's horns is because they're shepherds. Ram's horns are the instruments that they get from the rams. From, that's, it's literally a ram's horn. And they are worshipping God with the instruments they have in their time. And they probably had a little bit of Greek influences, which is why they have lyres. And obviously, being in Egypt for a while, they have some Egyptian influences with some of their harps and the way they're styled. If you go back and look at the archaeological record, you can kind of trace some of the instruments and how the different cultures influenced each other. But you don't see God saying, only worship God with the Israelite-inspired instruments. You know, you can use the ram's horns, but the lyre kind of has Greek stuff, so you can't use a lyre in worship. 
Um, we, don't, we don't see that connotation in the scripture. Instead, God redeems all of the instruments and wants them to be present in worship. But don't forget point number one. The instruments do still need to be subservient to the singing and the lyrics and the truth that's being spoken. So if next Sunday somebody comes and they're a world-class bagpipe player, and they ask, hey, can I do bagpipes in the worship service? This room is not acoustically set up to do bagpipes. So I'm going to have to say sorry, no, because if you played bagpipes in here, we couldn't hear each other sing, and it would drown us all out, because that is a very loud instrument. Um, so yeah, probably not going to do bagpipes, probably not going to do anything that's distracting or unusual, but at the same time, where we have instruments that can support the singing of God's truth, absolutely, there's a place for instruments in worship. And in, in larger venues or in different cultures, different instruments are going to appear. A, a church worshiping in Africa is going to have very different instruments than a church in America. And a church in China is going to have different instrumentation than a church in America. And a church in a big cathedral in Europe that needs louder instruments so that everybody can stay together, they're going to need a lot louder instruments than we will in our smaller space. So it's important for the instruments to serve the space, to serve the people, to serve the lyrics. But it's not that God picks certain instruments and doesn't pick other instruments. The, all of, God wants to be worshipped by all the instruments, but in a way that's helpful to God's people. So ho hopefully that makes sense to you and gives you kind of a, a way to think through instruments. And, you know, it's, it's not that, oh, I like this instrument and I don't like this instrument. It's, this is what instruments are going to help us encourage one another and sing together. So that's, that's what's being kind of commanded here in this passage. Now, this kind of goes in, begins to get into some other, I want to take a moment and talk about some other challenges that churches and church music often runs into. So I want to take a few minutes and talk about some other things that are kind of practical applications of this. So we, we want to have singing, we want to have instrumentation. So a couple more questions might be popping into your mind. So I want to take a minute and answer some of those. The first challenge we have is that music is inherently emotional. And, and this is a good thing. God has given us music as a gift. Music is a way to express emotion. I mentioned at the beginning that blessed be your name makes me tear up almost every time because it reminds me of my salvation. Um, but the song, uh, Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, is, it's a classical piece. My dad used to play that for me when I was a small child. So when I hear that piece, I remember my dad and how much fun it was for him teaching me all about the orchestra. And, you know, he taught me all about the different orchestra instruments. So when I hear that, I get excited because that piece reminds me of a good memory with my father. And there's probably music like that. I mean, I'm sure everybody in this room has songs that are both maybe Christian songs and not Christian songs that remind you of times in your life, that one concert you went to, and that gets you excited. And, and that's a good thing. God made music that way on purpose. So when we think about emotion in worship service, emotion in corporate singing, there are kind of two ways, two ways we can go on this in terms of, you know, do we try to make music less emotional or do we try to make music more emotional? And to give us a little guidance on this, I want to look at Revelation 5, 8 through 14. Revelation 5, 8 through 14, listen along because it's in a sense very much a parallel passage to Psalm 98 that we were just reading. So listen closely and see if you catch some of the same things. So this is the worship service taking place in God's throne room. So Revelation 5, 8 through 14. And when he had, let's see. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down in worship. And you hear all of the parallels. Singing a new song is in there. The worship going out to the nations. The voices being lifted up over the harps. And that's what's heard is the voices singing. And then the truths that's being sung about. This, this worship matches the worship in the Old Testament. They're, they're very, very similar. But notice that the elders, they're burning incense and they're bowing down. This is a very emotional service. These, these people who are in God's presence are not standing slouched over checking their cell phones. They're singing, they're worshiping, they're falling down. There's, there's an emotional power. But there's not an emotional effect because there's incense in the air or because there's the fire in God's throne room. The emotional impact is there because of the words they're singing. They're singing to a worthy God. They're meditating on the truths they're singing, and that's what gives the emotional weight to the song. So, so as a church, when we, sing, when we sing a song, when we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that's a powerful emotional statement. And we can let it be a powerful emotional statement. We don't need to try to stifle that. Let the words speak to you and to each other. But at the same token, we don't need to try to make it more emotional. We don't need to dim the lights. We don't need smoke machines. We don't need everybody to close their eyes and everybody to raise their hands. We don't have to try to manufacture a spirit of worship because the lyrics that we're singing should have all of the truth and all of the emotional impact right there in front of us. So we can worship God, we can remember truth and sing truth to each other without trying to make it gimmicky or try to make it more interesting than it needs to be because it already is interesting. It already is powerful. So we don't need to add to worship. We don't need to take away. We just need to sing God's truth, which is what the angels do. And that's what the, the, the Israelites did in the Old Testament when singing the Psalms. So that's the first kind of challenge of how do we address the emotional, the emotional nature of music. Second thing I want to talk about Music is inherently technical. It's not just a spiritual gift. Now, if growing up your mother ever made you take piano lessons, you know for a fact that musical instruments are very technical. You have to practice, practice, practice. You have to show up to lessons. You have to forget to practice. And then your teacher yells at you and says, hey, you got to practice or you're never going to be good at this. And then you practice extra hard and you do better the next time. And, and musical instruments take discipline. They take skill. You know, learning to run a soundboard, learning to do projection or lighting, that's a skill. It takes technical ability. It's not just something you can pray for on a Saturday, and then Sunday you wake up and know how to play the guitar and lead worship. You've got to work at this. Um, and, and a lot of churches kind of run into this, where, where a pastor may set a vision of what he wants the music to sound like, or they hire a worship leader who comes in and says, this is what I want our music to sound like. And God hasn't given them quite the volunteers and the talents and there's that temptation of, well, let's just, we got money in the budget. Let's just hire a sound guy. You know, we want to, you know, 
be on television, so let's hire a videographer. Let's hire a production manager and a lighting guy. And you know, the volunteer pianist can't really keep up with our new style, so we'll hire a pianist and hire a worship leader. And I had a, a dear friend come to me many years ago, and he told me, Jared, I'm, I'm struggling with volunteering at my church. I feel like the, the atmosphere is not very good, and I, I'm struggling to figure out what it was. And I asked the pastors, and they told me that they felt it too, because they had, hi- they had set this grand vision, and they had hired all these people. And the next thing they know, they're running a corporation. They're running a business. They've got all of this giant staff, and now nobody's volunteering anymore. And everything's so professional and production and high quality, and we're sinking all this money into it. And it's not a church anymore. Instead of you know, a place where we can come together and sing and encourage each other, it, it felt like, like they were running a business, and the pastors were trying to figure out how to get back to volunteers and to people who love and serve and care for one another, instead of having this massive staff. And, and that's not to say that a church that's struggling with that isn't biblical, but it's, it's a trap that, that many churches fall into for, for good desires. You know, wanting to have good music at your church is not a bad thing at all. But trying to overly professionalize the worship in a church can be very, very dangerous. And I'd encourage all of us as we kind of think and we pray and, you know, if, if, you're, if our vision for our music ministry is different than what it is or whatever, we pray that God would give us musicians, that he would give us sound, sound booth people, that he would give us people who are good at organizational skills. These are things that we need and we, we have to pray for these things instead of trying to recruit them from, from the world and you know, fill the church staff with people who aren't Christians. I think a good example of this, and one thing that I find helpful, is to look at 1 Chronicles 16. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 7. Um, some of you may know this, but my dad was a worship leader growing up. So I grew up kind of seeing a lot of the behind-the-scenes thing. I spent most of my teens and 20s in the sound booth or leading worship. So this is, a lot of this is very personal to me and stuff that I've kind of seen growing up. Um, but one of, the, one of the verses that I'm glad is in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 16, 4 through 7. What we see here is David setting up the very first worship team. Listen as I read. Then he, David, appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him was Zechariah, Jael, Shimeramoth, Jehiel, Matthiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was, on, was to sound the cymbals, Benaiah and Jael, Jehizel, where the priests were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that the thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And you see here, David's calling them together not to put together a sweet worship album, not to make a set or to bring fame to themselves. He's calling them together to worship God and to lead the congregation in worshiping God. And you'll notice that he points everybody from the Levites. He's not calling up Egypt or Greece and saying, hey, I really need a star liar player. What, what can you get me? You know, he's not, he's not looking to other countries. He's not looking to other areas. He's calling Levites to serve. The people of God should be the ones leading worship. And it's important that the worship team be Christians, that they be, that they be people of God. And, and David, David recognizes this. If you look at David's court, and we don't have time to really explore it today, his, a lot of his bodyguards, a lot of his advisors were from other countries. But when he sets up a worship team, the worship team is entirely Levites. This is God's people that serve. And it's worth noting, um, if you turn a few more, few more pages over, in uh, 1 Chronicles 25, 
we see in verse 7 that the number of them, along with their brothers, who was trained in singing in the Lord and were skillful, was 288 people. That's how big the worship team was. Now, they had to lead worship for all of Israel, so obviously they needed a big worship team. But they had a pretty, pretty big worship team. And it says here that they had teachers and uh, pupils. They were studying. They were training. They had practice sessions and practice jams. There's a lot going on. In fact, the next couple of verses are actually Old Testament planning center. It gives the names of the shifts. It says, all right, there's 12 shifts. You're the leader of shift one. You're on shift two. Week three, you're leading worship. And it, it lines it out. There's a lot of organizational skills. And it's neat to me that they put that in the Bible. Um, so if you missed your shifts, it was in scriptures. It wasn't just that you forgot to check the, you know, the, the, the sheet in the lobby. But it, it's, it's neat to see that this kind of organizationalness and intentionality went into Old Testament worship. There was, there was a plan in action. There was a training program for young musicians. There was older musicians teaching younger musicians. And they knew who was on worship and who's playing the trumpet this week and who's on cymbals this week. Um, you'll notice that Asaph is playing the cymbals, and then when we get to Psalm 150, it's cymbals, loud, crashing cymbals. So he gives himself a solo right there. Um, but it's, it's, it's neat to kind of see how Old Testament worship's conducted. Oftentimes when we think about, you know, what does a psalm sing sound like, we think of it as an a cappella thing. But this, word, this music was written for a worship, worship band, basically. You had lyres and harps and cymbals and percussion. And, and it was, that was how the psalms were sung originally. They were sung with a worship band there. And sometimes David would come and he would lead from, from his instrument and he would be the worship leader. And oftentimes it would be Asaph or the sons of Korah and these, these early church musicians who were basically the Old Testament version of what we are today. And they're leading worship and they're praising God and they're writing music and they're writing music that points to who God is. And, and they can give us a good early example of what church music should be like. Now, the, the third thing, though, that I want to talk about in terms of challenges, the final challenge here, is that music is limited by culture and cultural instrumentation. So we're all Americans. We, for the most part, we speak English, which makes it a little bit easy in terms of worship. Now, a lot of churches around the world have more than one language, and they'll worship in two languages or even three languages. I've had missionaries that I've talked to, and they, their services are regularly done in three languages. So they have to sing songs in all the languages, and the musicians have to know how to play and keep up with three languages, and it's a little bit more of a challenge. So we have it a little bit easy here. But one of the churches that had this bilingual challenge was a church at, church at Ephesus. So look with me, if you would, at Ephesians 5.19. So I want you to hear how, how Paul addresses this church when it comes to church music. Ephesians 5.19. You may already know this verse. Ephesians 5.19 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But we need to ask ourselves, what do these terms actually mean? Because we've, we've reassigned meanings to these terms all the time, and they've changed throughout history, and these all have kind of American connotations. So sometimes when we think hymns, the first thing that comes to mind is Isaac Watts. And his, you know, his beautiful hymns. Well, Isaac Watts wasn't born when, during Paul's day. So Paul obviously can't just be referring to Isaac Watts' music. He wouldn't throw that in. Like, well, in 2,000 years, you can sing this music, but it hasn't been written yet. So obviously, that's not what he's saying here. So what these words mean, Psalms, of course, Psalms literally refers to poetry set to music. 
which is found in the 150 Psalms in the Bible. But there's a lot of other Psalms in the Old Testament. You have the Psalms of Moses and Miriam. David sings Psalms that are not recorded in the book. And, and there's other Psalms there. And there were more Psalms written after, during the first century church, that are written during the New Testament times that are called the Odes of Solomon. We still have these preserved today. We have records of Psalms that were written during the New Testament times, not the Old Testament times. So Psalms is the Jewish style of music. That was their worship style was Psalms. Hymnos is Greek. That's the Greek style of music. See, the Greeks, when they grew up, their pop music was veneration of gods and heroes. That's what a hymn is. A hymn to a god, a hero, a nation. So when you win a mighty victory in battle, you write a hymn about it. And you know, when you sing a hymn to Zeus or a hymn to you know, what other Greek gods you like. So when they became Christians, their musicians, the first thing they wanted to do was write a hymn to Jesus. They wanted, instead of writing hymns to false gods, they wanted to write hymns to the true God. And they said, let's write hymns, to Je- let's write hymns for Jesus. Now, for us, that sounds so obvious because we, we've grown up, a lot of us have grown up with hymns. But for this first century church, the Jews are sitting there going, no, that's pagan music. We don't like that. And there began to arise this division. And remember what we read in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, we saw that it said that the, the Gentiles had been far off, that they had been separated. They were the people called uncircumcised, but they are now Verse 21, in whom a whole structure being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They are no longer separated. The Greeks are being welcomed into the church too. And we know from the New Testament, the Greeks were not being told, you got to convert to Judaism and do things the Jewish way, and then you can be a Christian. No, the Greek culture was to be sanctified, to be changed, and to be brought into the church. So what Paul is telling the church here is the Jews need to be singing some of the Greeks, the Greek hymn, the new Greek hymns. And the Greeks need to be singing some of the Jewish, the Jewish psalms. And they need to sing each other's spiritual songs and the, the songs of other believers who might come along. So that when the world looks and sees them, the world can tell just by their music that people who the world thinks should be enemies are now brothers and sisters singing and encouraging each other in Christ. And the music of the church is defined by the unity that the gospel brings. So the truth that he's telling them about in, in, in chapter 2, that, that unity is seen in their music. So when he commands them, sing together, he wants them to sing each other's worship music and to, to come together. And this is the challenge that I have for us, is we're called to sing worship music that maybe isn't our preferred style, but encourages those of us around us. So if you prefer hymns or you prefer worship choruses, or maybe you prefer something like Psalm 100 that's a little bit older piece, whatever your preference is, you know, sing that, but sing the stuff that's not quite as much your preference because it encourages the people around you and it shows the watching world that we are united, that we love each other, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have the opportunity just in the way we sing to present the gospel to the watching world, to anybody who comes among us and sees that we all sing music together. And that's what Paul's commanding here. He's commanding us to break down those barriers that the world sets up between people. And for us, what that might look like in our time, a lot of churches see division among the, you know, the traditional service at one hour and the contemporary service. And I'm not trying to call it any specific churches here, but that, that points to a weakness. That, that points to a, a deficiency of understanding the unity that the gospel brings. 
Christian freedom is about the ability to give up our personal preferences so that we can love and serve and encourage one another by singing each other's music. And in a church that divides the service, old people and young people, you know, if you remember the, ser- the, the sermon a few weeks ago from Titus, how, how are the, the older men supposed to, to nurture the younger men and the, the old women supposed to lead the younger women if they won't even go to the same service together? You know, and it begins to, to break and to fracture the church. So what I would encourage any church that's in that situation to reevaluate and to come together, to try to get all of the generations to come together and worship and love one another. And yes, there's songs that we sing at this church that are really stuff that I love. They're my favorites. And there's other stuff we sing that's not really my style. But you're going to still hear me singing them out because I love each and every one of you. And I want you to be encouraged. And while it might not speak to me as much because I don't stylistically like it, as long as it's true, I want you to hear the truth and to be encouraged. So I'd encourage you, sing out whether or not the song is your personal preference. We have a great opportunity to show a watching world how through church music, through truth, we can be united to one another. And to, to sing authentically, kind of to, to sum all this up, we're called to sing authentically. We're called to sing with instrumentation where we have opportunity, focusing on the lyrics, focusing on praising, praising Jesus and, and talking about the truths that have impacted us. And we're called to have an authentic representation of the gospel in our worship. Now, all of that said, we could maybe end it here, but I want to look at how the psalmist ends Psalm 98. So go back to Psalm 98, if you would, please. We see here in verses 7 through 9, it says, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. And what we see here is the psalmist, after giving us this command to worship God and telling us how to do it, he gives us an example of something to sing about. So he gives us an example from nature. So using nature as an analogy and a way to point to God. We see the sea roaring. We see rivers clapping their hands. We see the hills singing. And it's interesting when you talk about nature as a metaphor in worship, because you can look at nature and see the beauty of nature, the beauty of rivers and hills, and it can point to the beauty of the creator who created these things. And you can look at the vastness of rolling hills and long rivers and think about the vastness and the, the majesty and the bigness of God. But he also points out here the, t- the, the coming judgment, the terribleness. So when a thunderstorm comes rolling in, or the tornado sirens sound, or we have a freeze like we did at the beginning of this year, that's a reminder by nature. That's nature crying out and singing and reminding us that someday judgment is coming. And just like with the storms, when the tornado sirens sound, you either have a place of refuge to go to, or you don't. You either have safety, or you're in severe danger right now, and you need to get to a place of safety. So we can know that when the day of judgment comes, we will either be found in Jesus, who will be our refuge, who will be our righteousness, or we don't have righteousness. We're trying to create our own righteousness if we're apart from Jesus. And we're in danger when God judges us with, equ- with equity, with equal equality and, and fairness. So I'd encourage you today as you consider this, this last verse here, ask yourself, you know, am I, am I found in the righteousness of Jesus? Has Jesus is Jesus my personal savior? Has he for, have my sins been forgiven? Have I called out to Jesus and found my place in him? And if that's true for you, then you can say that Jesus paid it all. 
All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And you can be excited. You can be joyful. You can sing loudly and encourage one another that we have this beautiful truth found right here that our righteousness is found in Christ. And when God judges the world with righteousness, he'll look on you. He'll see the righteousness of Christ. And you will be found to be God's people. If that's not you today, as you hear us sing about the joy we have in being found in Christ, my prayer for you is that you would seek to know Jesus, that you would call out to him, that you would repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be your savior and your refuge and your righteousness, that you would want to be found in Christ's righteousness so that when the judgment comes, you will also have the righteousness and that you can join with us in saying that Jesus paid it all and there's no more that we need to do. So I'm going, in a moment here, I'm going to pray and we'll take a few moments of meditation and then we'll sing this song together. And as we sing, I pray that you would Think about the lyrics. Think about the truths we're communicating to each other. Sing and praise and thank God for what he has given you in Christ. Seek to encourage your, your own soul as well as the souls of those around you. Join with me in prayer. Father, thank you that you have given us the gift of music. Thank you that we can praise and worship you together, that we can raise our voices and sing. Pray that you'd help us to sing heartily, to meditate on truth, whatever truth is, wherever the truth is present, that we would seek to encourage one another and to love one another. Help us to sing music that we're maybe a little uncomfortable with sometimes, or maybe it isn't our favorite song, but we know that it's encouragement to those around us. Pray that you would help us to seek you in everything and to always remember that Jesus paid it all. Bless the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.